It's great to be with you all this morning. I uh, have gotten to know Josh over the last couple years now. Love him. You guys have a great pastor. Um, and what you're doing here in the community, uh, Trinity is a light. And it's great to just be in a gospel-loving church this morning. Uh, so, Galatians 2.20, our text, and let's go to the Lord in prayer before we get going. Father, we all come in here this morning and very different places. Some people are coming off great weeks. Some people are coming off terrible weeks. Some people are in the midst of suffering. Some people are in a great season of joy right now. Some people have hearts that have not been born again. Others have been walking faithfully for decades. But God, I believe that your word has something to say to every person here this morning. So Lord, open up hearts. Open up eyes to see what that is, and Father, we ask that your Spirit be here in a mighty way with us this morning. We pray this in the name of Christ, amen. It doesn't take a theologian or a pastor to tell you today that the church is in trouble. We all recognize the chaos from the world around us, from the outside. Even this week, you're hearing reports that we could be on the brink of nuclear war, From the inside, as they mentioned this morning, we see the events unfolding in Charlottesville, and we recognize that systemic racism is still very much alive in this country. Also, if you're following the news, you'll have seen that a man by the name of James Damore was fired from Google for giving a dissenting belief on issues of gender. And Christians have been recognizing now for decades that the stronghold of the Christian worldview that has been wrapped around the Western world is beginning to lose its grip. And Christians have always been a bit alarmist. As soon as there is a shift in the winds, fear breaks loose in the ranks. And I, for one, am concerned for the church in this society. But it's not because of the threat of nuclear war or even the loss of religious freedom. I am concerned because the church has adopted what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Eighty years ago this year, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book that has become a Christian classic called The Cost of Discipleship. Bonhoeffer also lived in a time of serious turmoil. You'll recognize the year 1937. He was a German in Nazi Germany. And as the Germans began to take over, one of the things that they looked at was the church and became this... Uh, nationalized church, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer thought that wasn't right, so they started a confessing church, more of an underground church movement, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually thought part of the call of Christ and discipleship for him was to stop tyranny in its tracks, and so he was part of an assassination attempt on Adolf Hitler. And when it failed, he was imprisoned, and he was hanged just before the Allies won the war. But as he saw this, the greatest threat that he saw was how many Christians so easily abandoned their call in Christ, the call to Christian discipleship, adopting what he called cheap grace and forsaking the difficult call of Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer defined cheap grace like this. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. He argues instead for what he called a costly grace. Grace cost 
God the death of his son. Grace is not a cheap thing. And if we will follow God, it will cost us too. It is also in this book that Bonhoeffer gave the famous line, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And for those who even in Bonhoeffer's day thought that was radical, Bonhoeffer's not doing anything more than what Jesus did. When Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. Or what Paul says in our text this morning, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Grace will cost you your life. The point today is this. The only Christian life is the crucified life. The disease which Bonhoeffer called cheap grace, we might call easy believism. It's the deadly idea that I I can have Jesus as my Savior because once upon a time in a VBS in a land far, far away, I prayed, accepted Jesus as my Savior. My life never changed. I never actually began to follow him in discipleship. But because of true doctrines, great doctrines, doctrines I believe in wholeheartedly like eternal security, like once saved, always saved, when Jesus has actually rescued you from sin, you are secure in Christ. That's true. But it's often been used by people who are not converted to excuse away their sin in cheap grace and easy believism. They live lukewarmly, and we know what Christ said about that. It's important for us to realize there's not two tiers of Christianity. Every time I hear something like this talked about, you begin to hear people start to say, well, yeah, that, that's for like the really go-getter kind of Christian. That's for like the on-fire kind of people. That, that's for pastors and people on church staff and worship leaders. I'm just kind of like an average layman kind of Christian, kind of in and kind of not in. That doesn't exist. I, I want to convince you partially of that this morning. That Christian does not exist. There are not two tiers. There are the people who are crucified with Christ, and there are people who are not believers. To say it another way, there's not two types of people in this world. Those who are dead but think they live and those who live because they have died. In Christ, death is life. In the world, life is death. It's a simple paradox that is all over Scripture. This morning, I have four people in mind. If you're here, I I think I can put you into one of four categories. First, you're here and you don't know Jesus. And you know you don't know Jesus. Maybe a friend brought you. Maybe this is one of the first times you've ever walked into a church before. And you're here, and you're you're trying to figure out what Christianity is, and you don't know who Jesus is. I want you to, to ask yourself this question. Is following Christ worth abandoning my life? Is it worth forsaking my life as I know it to follow Jesus? Second, there are others here, and this is the most terrifying category for me every time I preach. You're here, and you think you're a Christian, but you're not. You have head knowledge of Jesus, but you've not been crucified with Christ. You want Jesus to save you from hell, but the thought of actually following him with abandon is not something you have done. Two questions for you. Is the temporary pleasures of sin worth eternity in hell? And second... Is the lukewarm life even bringing you joy? We're going to hit on this some this morning. I I firmly believe that half-hearted Christianity is the most joyless Christianity there exists. 
Third, there's the Christian who started off desperately wanting to follow Jesus, but something has distracted you. You look back at times when, when you were on fire for the Lord, you were walking with Jesus, and now you realize, I've drifted. Something has caused me to stray from that kind of discipleship, from that kind of following of Jesus. I had a pastor who used to say, the most joyless Christian is the Christian who's living in sin because the Holy Spirit keeps gnawing at your soul, keeps convicting you of sin, keeps calling you back, and you keep ignoring it. And there's no joy there. So this morning, I want you, even as I'm preaching, to pray that the Lord will convict your heart and begin to draw you back into that place that you were once with him. And the fourth kind of person, you're here and you are living the crucified life and you are on fire for the Lord. And I just want to be like the cheerleader on the side of the road, cheering you on as you run this marathon that we call the Christian life. So I think all of you here are in one of those four places. And I hope you're thinking about that right now. Where am I and how could the Lord speak to me this morning? Well, this morning's text does come from Galatians 2, and we're going to focus almost exclusively on verse 20, but I want to give us a running start in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The entire book of Galatians is really a fight over the nature of the gospel itself. 2,000 years have gone by, and there's still a lot of contention about what is the actual nature of the gospel. What is the good news that we profess? There were some in Galatia, after Paul had come in and taught the gospel, who came in and said, yeah, what Paul said, that is great, but he left something out. If you want to be right with God, not only do you have to have faith in Jesus, but you also have to be circumcised. You also have to obey the law. You also have to keep the Sabbath. And Paul is saying, They've missed the gospel. They're packing extra things in. And the reality, the same problem that the church of Galatia had is the same problem that we have today, which is that we crave works righteousness. We want to be able to do something that God will look at us and say, now that one's a good one. That one over here, not so good. But boy, that guy, that girl has it going on. They must really love me. But it strikes at the very heart of the gospel repeatedly through Galatians, Paul centers back to the idea of the center of our faith that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crucified for sinners, and when sinners repent and place their faith in Jesus, they are justified by faith alone, which means that God considers you not guilty of sin and then goes the extra step and gives us the righteousness of Christ. So that when God does look at you, he sees the perfect, holy obedience of the Son in and through your life. 
And Paul is striking at this again and again in the book of Galatians. You can't add anything to the gospel without losing the entire gospel. And yet, Paul is not going to be content with the type of belief that does not produce a changed life. It isn't just what we believe and we can have this head knowledge as though we can have a full-headed, half-hearted faith. It's foolish to Paul. If Christ is living in you, how could that not change everything about you? Look what he says in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. Following Jesus costs you your life. It is a crucifixion of yourself. What is the crucified life? The crucified life is the one in which you say with John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. The crucified life is one in which you say, Jesus first, me last. The crucified life is one in which you'll forsake anything if only to know him. The crucified life is one in which there is no sin that is sweeter than righteousness, in which no earthly treasure where moth and rust destroy even compares to the treasure that is kept for you in heaven. The crucified life is one in which you consider your life as worth nothing if only you will testify to the goodness of God's grace, if only life to you is Christ and death to you is gain. It's one in which you will suffer any poverty or persecution, any abuse or aggression, any defeat or despair because you know you've already died in Christ and it's Jesus now who's living in you. I I just wonder, what would it look like in our churches, in in our society, if every Christian lived like that? And what we're not talking, we're not talking about radical Christianity. We're talking about normal Christianity. We're talking about this is the life that a regenerate person should have. Look back in verse 20. He goes on to say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Let me ask you this question. When people look at your life Do they say, yeah, I see Jesus living through you? The first thing that comes to my mind when I see you is I just see Christ. People who say he used to be short-tempered and harsh, but now I see kindness and patience because Christ is living through him. She used to be a slanderer and a gossip, but now I hear encouragement on her lips. He used to objectify women, now he treats them like sisters in the faith. She used to be vain and greedy, but now she's generous and modest. Is that what they would say about your life and growing every year, 10 years from now, even if you're a saint already? Are they going to say, man, I just see more death to self, more life to Christ. It is a daily struggle for the Christian. Ever since I knew I was going to be preaching this, the whole thing like you got to kind of practice what you're preaching and every morning having to wake up and saying, Lord, today I'm crucified. I am yours. Whatever your will be in and through my life today, take it. It's no longer I who live, Christ lives in me. Paul tells the church at Corinth, I die every day. He also said to them, you're not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Every morning, every morning, that should be your thought. Because if it's not, you're going to be set on things that are already on your mind, you're going to be living your life for you, and you're not even going to be thinking about how Christ would have you live that day. The great Charles Spurgeon once said it like this, I have now concentrated all my prayer into one, and that one prayer is this, that I might die to self and live wholly to him. 
You think about your life, you think about the struggles that you have. If you said, I, all my prayer, every time I pray, Lord, let me die so that you might live through me. That brings transformation. Paul continues in Galatians 2.20. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. This is a critical phrase. You cannot miss this. I know I'm running a big risk in telling you the gospel is all about faith alone in Christ alone. And then saying, oh, but you better live crucified. And you could leave here thinking, it's up to me. I got to work to please God. That would be absolutely a front, an affront to this passage. We are saved by faith alone. This year we get to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And the book of Galatians was a, a battleground because writ large across this book is the idea that we are saved, we are justified by our faith in Christ alone. It's the whole point of the book. So, so don't hear me say that we add to justification. We don't. But the crucified life is actually the life that is lived out by faith. Because by faith, we're united to Christ, and then Christ is living through us. So we're crucified in him, and we come to him in faith, and then it's his life lived through our life. Martin Luther, the great reformer, has a wonderful book on on Galatians. If you ever thought like commentaries are kind of dry, start with Martin Luther's Galatians commentary. It is riveting. And he says this, Paul explains what constitutes true Christian righteousness. True Christian righteousness is the righteousness of Christ who lives in us. We must look away from our own person. Christ in my conscience must become one so that I can see nothing else but Christ crucified and raised from the dead for me. If I keep on looking at myself, I am gone. That's the whole point of the crucified life. Stop looking at yourself so much and look more to Jesus. There are many people who would question, is it worth it? Is it worth it? I mean, the call to the Christian faith is the call to come and die. I think we don't package it like that very often. We package the easy believism, but we don't tell people, if you want to follow Jesus, it means you die. And so it's a fair question. Is is this even worth it? But then look at what Paul says. The next Phrase in Galatians 2.20, who loved me and gave himself for me. Loved me and gave, he gave himself for me. If Jesus had never been sent, if Jesus never died for your sins, wouldn't it be a fair question to ask, why, why do I got to crucify myself for him? What has he tangibly done for me? But no, no, Jesus says, I died for you because I love you. I've been crucified for you. And now you're going to be crucified. You're going to crucify your life for me so that I might live through you. And why does he do it? See, this is where the love of God comes in. So don't hear this as something that is just another demand on your life. It's just another, this is what I have to do. There's no greater joy than giving our lives to the one who gave his life to us. You might also be asking, what does the crucified life look like? And, and there's two things I really want to highlight because they come up in the book of Galatians. And I think Paul makes these kinds of connections. The first is that you crucify your sin. You crucify your sin. Part of living the crucified life is that we're constantly putting our sins to death. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, 
That's what, we're, that, that's what coming to Christ is. It's repenting of sin. It's turning from sin and seeing that he has paid for that and you want to turn away and walk towards him. But Paul says to the church of Galatia, formally, that it is when you were not believers, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature were not gods. Sin is enslavement. It's enslavement. Our world will talk about the freedom that comes. Like, if you want to live to a Christian life, abandon all joy. Abandon all happiness. Happiness are these things over here. When really, enslavement are the things that are over there. There's superficial brokenness, pain in those types of so-called joys. I read an article recently that talked about the fruit that is ripening from the sexual revolution that was planted half a century ago. The flower children of the 60s told us that we need to make love and not war. And that idea has grown and given us a pornography epidemic that may very well destroy a generation of families and maybe even civilization itself because as the family goes, so goes society. But this particular article came in a teen magazine. And I'm not trying to be crass, but it it was telling teenage girls why they should participate in sodomy, how it's good, how it's natural, how it's fulfilling. It's being marketed to to teenagers as this is what's going to bring you joy. Then I read another article that was posted from doctors who see these young teenage girls who have lifelong medical complications and things. That didn't make its way into the teen magazine. We're promising you freedom But we're not telling you about brokenness. We're promising you joy, superficial. But we're not telling you about all the brokenness that comes along with it. But the beauty is that Christ came for freedom. In Galatians 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has sent us free. Stand firm then and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul's saying, you've already been born again. You've already been crucified with Christ. Why would you go back to slavery again? Why are some of you going back to slavery again? Why are some of you abandoning the hope that you once had in Christ and turning back to the sins that used to hold you tightly? Why are you turning from joy to pain? To the Christian who's re-entangled with the world, what has distracted you? Paul even says in Galatians 5-7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? I think we get distracted sometimes just because the Godward life is not easy. There's difficulty in it. We go a day or two without reflecting on the goodness of Christ toward us. We drift from spending time in the Word. Our prayer lives basically slow to a halt, except for maybe the passing prayer on the pillow or in the car. But the problem is that sin never stops coming for you. Until we are in glory, until we have Set this earthly life aside. We are in a battle against sin. Bonhoeffer wrote this as well. When all is said and done, the life of faith is nothing if not an unending struggle of the Spirit with every available weapon against the flesh. Unending struggle. And yet we want to give people easy believism. He said preparing them with the armor of God for the 
fight of the Christian faith. We have been in Arizona now for two years. So technically our third summer. I think that's how we count that in Arizona, right? I've been here three long summers. And uh, I try to take care of our, our yard as best I can. I did not think rocks would take as much maintenance as they do, but apparently they do. So we, uh, we, have, to, we have to garden these things out. And I, I, I did not even know this existed for the first two years, and now I'm kind of on cloud nine because there's like this little hoe kind of thing you can rake them out of the ground with. If you don't know, go to Lowe's. They have them. Uh, changed my life. And so we use these things, and we rake out all the, all, all the, um, the weeds, and then we left. So we left in June, and, and we were gone um, for a while. So it was five weeks. Don't be a hater. It's the, one of the profs of the perk life, uh, the pro, one of the perks of the prof life, rather. And I think, I think there's a lot of professors here. I think I might have actually gotten an amen out of a professor, which is probably a rare thing. And uh, <clears throat> so we, we were gone for a while. And it just didn't really dawn on me that, like, when I got back, I thought the this, this summer sun would just scorch everything. And we got back, and my yard looked like a jungle. And I, I remember thinking, I just did this. Like, I, right before we left, like a day or two before we left, I spent hours raking the rocks to get all these things out. And we have this horrible pine tree that just spits pine needles all over my yard. And so I got all those, I mean, hours in the 110-degree heat to come home and have to redo it all over again. That's our life. When you think, I can go without gardening this. I can go five weeks and expect to come home and see the garden of your heart clean. That's just not what's going to happen. The weeds of sin are always coming up. And if you are in a fight against sin, you weed every day. You ask the Spirit to search your heart. And you root those things out because when you go too long, the garden gets overgrown. So the question is this, are are you in step with the Spirit? Towards the end of Galatians 5, Paul says this, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. He's bringing up that language again, with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So it's an easy question. Are you in step with the Spirit? Because Paul says if you live in a crucified life, you've put to death the passions and desires, you do that by walking in the Spirit. It's a question as old as Christian preachers. But if the Holy Spirit was not in your life, would you or anyone else know it? Joyless Christianity comes from straddling the fence between culture and Christ. Hold sin in one hand, the Savior in the other, you lose your joy in Christ. The lost person at least finds some form of joy in living hedonistically, but the crucified, uh, the crucified Christian with Christ, the unregenerate in the world, the straddler trying to hold Christ and the world, only finds hollowness, not real life. If you find that this morning you have been distracted by sin, that, that sin is winning more than holiness in your life, that if you took an honest look at your heart this morning, you see it full of the weeds of sin, I, wanna, I want you to be encouraged. I don't want you to look at that and say, oh, I've, I've let it go so long, I'm in despair, there's no hope. There is always hope. If the Spirit is convicting you of sin this morning, 
Take great hope in that, that God is still working in your life, convicting you of sin. And today's a new day. You can't worry about what happened yesterday, but that God is the God of new mercies every morning. And here we are on a beautiful Sunday morning, hearing the word of God preached. Today is a day that the Lord could redo a work in your life. That's the beauty of the gospel. The second thing would be to crucify your selfishness. Now, I understand that is a sin. So crucify your sin, crucify your selfishness. I got it. But I think it deserves its own category because I think we're so prone to selfishness. Because when we reduce the crucified life just to a war against sin, we miss the positive aspects of our new life with Christ. And that is that one of the things we're set free to do is set free to love other people. In Galatians 5, Paul says it like this, you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So not only are we crucifying our sin as crucified people in Christ, but we're also living a life of love and service for other people. Remember what Paul said in Galatians 2.20, he loved us and gave himself for me. That's the selflessness of Christ. Or think back on Philippians chapter 2. It's that great Christological passage that Jesus did not seek equality with God, but took the form of a servant. Do you remember what verses came before that? Paul's actually using that as an illustration of how we ought to love one another. He said, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Because of sin, though, we we are just hardwired for self. I was really, con- I, I, first of all, I thought I was pretty selfless. And then uh, in college, I lived with five guys in one apartment. And you begin to realize who the cleaners are and who the cleaners aren't. Um, and they were starting to encroach on my space with their nastiness. And I didn't like that very much. And so I saw some selfishness rising up then. And then in 2007, I got married and she moved into the house that I'd already been living in for a little while and thought that she could bring her own style and design to my space. Um, <laughs> she won. We started having like flowers on the kitchen table and things like this. It was weird. Uh, but I realized like she's coming into my space and I don't know how much I like that. And then you, of course you add kids to it and you really begin to see selfishness because boy, your time is just not your own anymore, is it? You're sharing your time with other human beings. And, but all those things, it's the beauty of God that he begins to give us these types of relationships where he shows, he shines a, a spotlight into our hearts, revealing some of these types of sins. And it's self-love. We like our schedules. We want to protect it. But the crucified life is living like Jesus who did not live like that, who lived for other people. And now you get to live for Christ, which will mean living for other people. So what, what would your spouse say this morning? After that little dig, my, I'm not going to ask that question on the way home, but you should ask that question on the way home and see what your spouse would say about you or your bosses, your friends. Are they selfless? Is that an, an adjective they would use to describe you? You'll think as you're hearing this too, some of you will will think as I did, this is exhausting. Living like this can be totally exhausting. And you know what? 
You're right it is. It's called crucifixion. When Jesus calls you to come and die, it's not the easy believism. It's not cheap grace. It will cost you everything. Is it exhausting? Absolutely. Is, is killing sin and loving others going to be difficult? Yes. But in that, we're following in the footsteps of Jesus, and that's where he's promised us to find true life and true joy. So we've kind of even talked about the motivation of the fact that Jesus died for us, we get to live for him. But I want to mention just one more in closing. Not only are we dying to ourselves because Christ first loved and died for us, but there's another theme in Galatians I think that's important to, to kind of highlight. And it's the theme of adoption. In Galatians 4, Paul talks about how, how God actually adopted us and brought us in to his family. I spoke with a friend a few weeks ago. He's a pastor, and he's a father of four. And out of the blue, a friend of his called and said, I want you to adopt a son. Well, you can imagine as you're just kind of living your life normally and that's not even on your radar, somebody just calls you and says, yeah, by the way, I want you to add another person to your family. So he took it home to his wife and, and said, hey, what do you want to do with this? Kind of, I think maybe kind of hoping she'd put the kibosh on it and say it's not a really good move. And he'd be like, you know, my wife said it's not a good time for us. Uh, but she didn't. She was thrilled. Absolutely. God has put this on our doorstep. We can't refuse this. Let's do this. So uh, things moved very quickly, and with just in a couple weeks, they had this boy, we'll call him Michael, living in their homes, in their home. Here's his story. He was born in Africa, and somebody was traveling down the road one day and saw him just thrown on the side of the road like a piece of trash, there just to die. And they, they took him up and brought him to an orphanage where he was nursed back to health and uh, put up for adoption. And a, a Christian family we'll say Christian family, adopted him. And they thought at the time that he was about three, and now he's about eight. It's been about five years. Um, but this past year, the family just said, you know what, we don't want him anymore. We don't have any desire to have him in our house. We're ready to get rid of him. So just like he started his life, thrown off on the side of the road, now here he is again with the family that adopted him. He's been living with him for five years. We don't want you. The family said, he's got a detachment disorder. We just can't work. He's got a detachment disorder. But my friend, who has just now adopted him, came to find out that they would lock him in his room for hours and days on end with no bathroom. So he'd have to use the bathroom in his room. And it made the family upset. So what they did is they came in and they tore out all the carpet, took out all the furniture. So he's living in this room that's just a plywood floor. Yeah, I think I would have a detachment issue as well. It hasn't been easy for my friend who's adopted him. There's always a period of adjustment, but, but Michael is flourishing now. He's been brought into this home with parents every day that say, Michael, you are part of this family. You will never, ever be abandoned again. We will never forsake you. You are our son. You are, you're not just loved, you are wanted in this family. And my friend said that whenever there's something to do around the house, Michael's always the first one up off the couch to go do it. And he said there might be some other issues there, but when it comes to like serving, he is on it. And he said it's because 
he's been rescued and redeemed and brought into this family, and he wants nothing more than to serve it. When he knew, I now have a dad who loves me, and I love him, I want nothing more than to live for him and to be part of this family. That's a picture of the gospel. That, that's a picture of what it means to live crucified. We have a Father who loves us, a Savior who died for us, a Spirit that indwells us. Dying to self, then, is the true life. It's a path to joy, and it is the only path for the believer. Let's pray.